Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, uh, Wes Anderson edition. Matt, how many Wes Anderson movies have we talked about in this uh, on this podcast? Oh, well, let's see. We uh, we started this thing in 2010, and he's been making movies since 1995, I want to say. Yeah. Bottle Rocket, right. maybe 95. 95, 96, maybe. I know, I know Rushmore's 98, I believe. That sounds right. Okay, so, so Bottle Rocket's probably yeah. 96. Well, it's interesting that you bring up how many that we've talked about, because uh, I was just doing a little bit of research before this and realized that the last time we talked, Wes Anderson would have been for the Grand Budapest Hotel, which would have been March 19th, uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. And you know why that episode is so significant for us? Oh, I I don't. Was it like our hundredth oh. episode? I see. You. There you go. There you go. I was about to say, geez, God, do our do our anniversaries mean nothing to you, <laughs> yeah, Oscar? Yeah. So that, the, the Grand Budapest Hotel will always be important to me because we talked about that one on our centennial episode. Beautiful, beautiful. I couldn't tell you what we talked about on our 200th episode, but number 100 was Grand Budapest Hotel, which was uh, four years ago this week. Perfect. What a thing. But to answer your question, I think we've talked, I want to say Darjeeling Limited. Nope, that can't be right because that was 2007. I guess it's just been Moonrise Kingdom Grand Budapest because even uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox technically predates this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, Unless we talked about it during our, you know, unofficial off-the-record buddy TV days or something. I don't think we did, but, you know, we definitely talked about Wes Anderson quite a bit in our pre-podcast days, both, you know, in high school and in, in college. You know, we, we uh, were we sophomores when uh, Royal Tenenbaums came out? I mean, that was a really, that was a big old deal. You mean Rushmore? No, no, I mean, Rushmore when, was when we were in high school. And then Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, yeah I, thought, I thought that's what you meant. Yeah. No, Royal Tenenbaums when we were freshmen in, in college, 2001. I know exactly where I was for both of them. I I, I saw Rushmore at the uh, Meridian 16. As did I. Downtown, yeah, yeah. Which is still there. And I saw the Royal Tenenbaums at the Galleria, the Regal Galleria in Bellevue, Washington, which is no longer there. Oh, that's too bad. I, I believe I saw it at the Guild 45th, which is now shut down, but apparently... Uh, being redone by by someone who's going to keep it a theater. Let's hope. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. Yes, I'll, I'll cross my finger. I'll cross both of them for you right now because uh, I like that. I liked that theater a lot as well. I think this is significant though because it proves just how important this particular filmmaker was in sort of our formative coming of cinephile age right exactly i mean both of the andersons wes and pt tarantino maybe a little bit before our time and that i didn't see you know either of his first films in the i didn't see his first three films in the theater and then uh you know somebody like christopher nolan is significant as well basically saw everything in the theater for for him since memento so like these guys really fall into i don't think we've quite come up with the term for this sort of like school mm-hmm. of um, filmmakers who came of age at the turn of the century. Yeah. The Gen Xers, but, I suppose. Well, they are part of the Gen X generation for sure. But like, what do we call that school of American filmmakers? I don't know if we have a term for it yet. Maybe we're not far enough removed from it yet. Maybe you got to put two decades worth of distance. Maybe, it, you know, yeah. maybe we need to be in the 2020s before we give these guys sort of like a, a I don't know, club name or something. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you think about the club, I, the, the the ones you've mentioned specifically are probably notable for being auteurs in, in, a, in a time when auteurism, I suppose, is not the, the most common thing. And their sort of longevity and, and work rate is, is pretty notable, pretty consistent work from, from these guys with, with sustained quality, which is, you know, historically, I would say, fairly rare right agreed and i also think auteur has become something of a dirty word these days or at least something that carries a lot of baggage with it that is not necessarily meant as a um as a compliment it's also interesting you know i was i was sitting the other day in class and i was kind of like uh, trying to look busy while my mind was wandering (laughs) elsewhere and i started just jotting down the uh occasionally i try and test myself and see if i can remember every film made by certain directors Yes. Um, and try and put them in chronological order and then reorder them per my preference because mm-hmm. uh, I'm that sort of a geek. So the other day I was sitting around and I and I did Wes, P.T., uh, Tarantino, Fincher, and um, I'm sorry, uh, Nolan, and then Fincher. Yes. Who's, who's all, who also started a little bit earlier than these guys. But 
interestingly enough, they basically all have about the same amount of films, eight, nine, ten films apiece. Uh, Nolan just, Dunkirk was his tenth film. Uh, Fincher, I think Gone Girl was his tenth film. Um, Isle of Dogs is uh, Wes's ninth film. Phantom Thread is PT's eighth film. And depending on how you break up the Kill Bills and depending on whether or not you count Death Proof, Mm -hmm. Tarantino has, you know, about eight or nine films at this point. Sure. Is is Wes the most, what's the best way to put this? Is he the most auteurish American auteur currently working right now? Yeah, he is the one of those you've mentioned. I mean, maybe Tarantino, but he seems to go into different genres. He's the most, he, he does not disappear into his movies. Like, it is extremely clear when it is a Wes Anderson movie. Every movie has his very unique stamp placed upon it you know i think we were talking offline the other day about uh darjeeling limited being his most like outlier of of a film and basically the reason being that he was you know shooting on location in a very hectic place in india but even then like it's still very wes anderson-y uh, both in you know theme, script, and, and st- style of shooting. Whereas you know Christopher Nolan goes into different genre films and makes, makes different kind of movies. I mean Tarantino has his has his own style, but definitely tries new things. Wes Anderson is always going to be Wes Anderson until he proves otherwise, and I, I don't think he has any interest in doing that. Is that what makes him so kind of polarizing? Is that why so many people just can't stand it because it is so exacting and it is so specific? And it is sort of like love it or leave it. You know, Wes Anderson has had an interesting sort of career arc in terms of the way uh, general, the the critical mass has has received him. He was a darling at first, and then it seems like there was some uh, fatigue in the way people were regarding him, maybe around the Darjeeling Life Aquatic era, where they're like, oh, it's so Wes Anderson-y, it's it's so twee, it's so hipster, all, all this kind of stuff and i always balked at that because you can't get mad at a guy doing a thing that he created you know <laughs> right yeah basically inventing his own category his own subgenre, really like i mean how many people now j- just as many people have been accused of making a wes anderson-esque film as were accused of making a tarantino-esque film in the late 90s right yeah exactly like you've basically created a, a category unto yourself yeah which is pretty impressive exactly and, and there, it's a really weird thing to 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 get to get to, to fault use, somebody for yeah to use that against them however i, I will say uh the run of uh you know Moonrise Kingdom, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Grand Budapest Hotel, I felt turned the tide, at least critically and generally, uh, about how we regard Wes Anderson. I mean, he, he got through the backlash phase of his career, and everyone is now seemingly on board again. Although, and we'll get to this later, Isle of Dogs has a very vocal uh, minority, you know, based on the reviews uh, of, of backlash going to this film, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the quality of the film yeah that's a really good point the ability to stay on course but basically outlast the backlash basically survive the backlash by keeping sort of like your eye on the prize sticking to your guns proving that you weren't a fluke i mean i do think that the the quality of the films i think he i think they're still they were always consistent in terms of style and in terms of tone but I guess just the, I don't know, the quality of the writing or whatever. I mean, I, I personally, I'm of the opinion that he's never made a film I haven't liked. I do feel that he is on something of a hot streak since Fantastic Mr. Fox at the moment where it seems to me that he is even able to kind of somewhat appeal to the haters, if you will. Especially Moonrise Kingdom and, and the Grand Budapest Hotel, which was nominated for Best Picture, his only film thus far to be nominated for Best Picture, are the movies you point to as like, the movies that even the Anderson haters sort of begrudgingly will agree that they kind of liked or at least appreciated or respected. Yeah, those two movies seem to be basically critically bulletproof. The most accessible. Yeah, people love those movies. And it's it's uh, he outlasted it to the point where people like, even the haters shrug and be like, okay, this guy is really good. He's not running out of steam. He knows what he's doing. And I, I think your point of him staying the course is extremely important. I mean, I'm sure there's an alternate universe where he listened too much to his critics and tried to branch out and do something different. I'm sure he was offered different things and, you know, he, could, yeah. he maybe could have been a mercenary for a movie or two, but 
No, he you know he's, he stayed. He has stayed true to himself and has been you know dirty word, but he has been an auteur throughout the whole thing. It's easy for us to talk about this and to um, wa- uh, wax his car in this manner, though, right? Because we both have been fans since the beginning. Like, can you put yourself into that mindset of the people who find him just to be? obnoxious to a fault to find just like that level of attention to detail or all that twee stuff to be uh infuriating like can we try and empathize with these people a little bit here to try and un- understand where they're coming from or how it must be for them every time one of these movies comes out <laughs> I and mean, i guess at the end of the day you could just ignore it you're not nobody's forcing you to go see it but i just i try to put myself in that in those shoes and be like god it must just be so obnoxious every time one of these movies every time one of these trailers comes along right it's like yeah. god this fucking guy again a 90 to 120 minute film every four years like th- there's no fatigue there Right, like there's no reason to be tired of a style that only comes around once every few years. Right, like that's been my issue with it, and it's never been a case for for him where it's been style over substance. You know, it's been both at the same time. It's not like these movies have been visually appealing and gimmicky without a soul or a good story, good narrative, uh, you know, good script behind them because you know. He's he's as good of a writer as he is a director. I th- again though, I think you're I think you're kind of coming from a place. I think you're coming from an apologetic place. I think you're coming <laughs> of course from the place I am, damn of, it. <laughs> of the fact, I know I know you can't divorce yourself from it. I'm yeah. just saying, like for us, we feel that the the qualities remain consistent and that he's always been able to back it up or whatever. He's always been able to style. He's always been able to back up yeah. the style with content or form or whatever you want to call it. But I totally get why this could be infuriating for people who just aren't on board. And I'm not going to use the term don't get it because I don't want to insult people's intelligence. I think it's just about not being on board with this. There's filmmakers I'm not on board with for sure. But I just think it's interesting that he is somebody who is so polarizing because he is so specific, mm-hmm. you know, like this is truly, I really don't know of anybody who just kind of shrugs and it's like, yeah, I like some of them, but some of them I haven't been so much into, but some of them are okay, but other ones not. No, no, it's, it's pretty much you're either like, you know, you're a hardcore completist, or you just don't get what all the fuss is about. I feel. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I feel like I do know among, you know, friends, family members, people who have seen all the movies. Basically, maybe there might be a blind spot, uh, you know, randomly, but aren't like obsessed with it, but just like all his movies. And it's just sort of a delight when a new one of Wes Anderson's movies come out. I, I think you know, backlash to Wes Anderson was was really the core of it. Was 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 critical, you know. People, people in the in the media didn't take a liking to this style for whatever reason. But like I said, I think even a lot of those people have come around. I've I've never talked to anyone who doesn't like Fantastic Mr. Fox, for instance. I haven't really talked to anyone who hates Grand Budapest Hotel. Then again, I'm in sort of a, you know, I'm in my own world, so I I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't talk to a lot of Wes Anderson haters these days. This really counts as the salad days right now, right? Like he is. Basically, if, if if we concede that like the Darjeeling Limited was one of the least accessible or the most problematic, then that means that he's basically four for four now, which means he is well. Oh, you know, I should I should wait <laughs> until until I hear about your your opinion about Isle of Dogs. But as far as I'm concerned, I'll go ahead and spoil that I really liked Isle of Dogs, and I feel that he's basically. I mean, I've liked all of his films, but I think that uh, in terms of consistency, critical consistency, um, he's made four films in a row now that seem like they are um, pretty well received. Yeah, I mean, at at this point, I think that his and I'll and I'll type this into Rotten Tomatoes right now. I believe that the only one of his films that is uh, rotten on Rotten Tomatoes is um, The Life Aquatic. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. Um, and, and this is part of the beauty of, of this, you know, this generation of filmmakers that, that you mentioned earlier with P.T. Anderson, Tarantino, Christopher Nolan. The benefit of these guys starting so young is we get a really long peak of their careers and, and while they still feel like they can take their time 
and, and make the movies they want to, right? Wes Anderson's still only 48 years old. And he's made, what, this is his eighth movie, we said? Ninth movie. Ninth movie. I mean, there's no reason you can't be making movies for another few decades if, you know, if what we see from, you know, the older filmmakers now, like, there's there's no reason that he can't put out another, you know, dozen movies over the course of his lifetime. He'll probably slow down at some point. You know, starting in your 20s is 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 a huge benefit for these guys. It doesn't make us feel good, uh, you know, as guys in their 30s, <laughs> but what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm always going to be emotionally conflicted about it. But, but, I mean, you know, what is it between, like, being jealous that these guys were able to find success as early as they did and not having all of the amazing movies that have, like, increased my quality of life? Yeah. Obviously, take the, take the movies. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean, your point's well taken. Like, he has remained, even though he takes, quote-unquote, too long between films, at least he has remained consistent of, like, pumping X amount out, you know, every three or four years. And obviously the stop-motion ones are going to take longer. What I find so exciting about the stop-motion stuff is that he can do the stop-motion stuff for longer than he can do the live-action stuff for, right? If he is going to make films into his elderly years, he's going to be able to make stop-motion films into in, into a very elderly age as opposed to just going out there and actually, like, boots-on-the-ground uh, live-action stuff, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean I, he can I, direct I, this stuff remotely. And that was so that, that, I mean, Fantastic Mr. Fox is kind of infamous for that, right? That he was, like, remotely directing from Paris for, for a lot of it while it was, quote-unquote, shooting in London. This movie is a lot more detailed and, I assumed, more grueling to make than Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, really? I could be wrong okay. about. I don't know. I, mean, I, I felt this. The sets were more intri- intricate, and there was just a lot more sort of action going on. I, I feel like it would have been a lot. Of, I don't. I guess I. I don't have a good sense for how difficult this stuff is. Really, my sense was that this might be his sort of favorite venue of filmmaking. I wonder. I mean, he's always obsessed with like maps. <laughs> And, and these set pieces and, and just being able to create whatever he wants out of the ether and be ext- so precise and not have to rely on any sets or any uh, practical locations. This feels like his perhaps preferred venue for filmmaking. I mean, do, do you feel like that's the case? Yes, I do. I feel like this is what he has always been building toward. And if somebody put a gun to my head today and said, would you prefer if he could only make one or the other for the rest of his career, what would you prefer that he make? I'd say 100 percent stop motion animation. (laughs) I think I think this is his I think this is his venue. I think this I think. It's it's not that he's founded or discovered it. I'm sure he's already, always been fascinated with it and always wanted to play in that sandbox. But I feel for whatever reason, he had to work his way through X amount of films before he was allowed to play in that sandbox. I'm hoping that we can rank Wes Anderson films again at the end of this podcast, but I'll go ahead and spoil it. I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is his best film. I don't know if he'll ever make a film better than Fantastic Mr. Fox. Considering how exacting he is and how specific he is and how he wants to control every little detail, you know, like every little piece of minutia means that he really shouldn't be working in the live action worlds. I mean, I'm assuming live action stuff probably frustrates him. I mean, technically it's still real, technically still tactile, technically all those hairs are physical. (laughs) Yeah. But you can control it in ways that you can't when you're shooting, um, you know, with real human beings in an actual location. I, I still want him to make live action stuff. I, I, I love the, <laughs> I love the performances he gets, and I love the yeah. sets he creates. And you know, I, I think it it makes him be more real in the in, in the script writing process. I, I guess. I mean, I, I do love this stuff, but. I don't know. When I think of my favorite Wes Anderson stuff, and we'll get this later, I think of, you know, Real Tana Bonds and Grand Budapest, really. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite sequences in Grand Budapest are the uh, stop motion sequences. Yeah. You know, like the like the bobsled chase and stuff, you know, or the funicular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess there is something to be said for the sort of like the the mashing of those two together, right? For the way sure. he's able to in- incorporate that stuff, like all the little sea creatures, you know, the the stop. I mean, he you know he was dipping his toe into this earlier, right? Like yeah. the you know the little uh, seahorses and stuff, and the little lizards in the Life Aquatic clearly something he was meant to be playing with from very early on but i mean he he can also he can also command casts 
when he does this animation stuff that he probably could never he could probably never get this kind of cast together for a live action film. Oh no, just, if only yeah. for scheduling reasons, right? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. It's funny that it's interesting that he's able to, despite the fact that his name is far and away like the biggest name on this poster in terms of like what the big draw is. Yeah, you're not going to see. Isle of Dogs because it's a Brian Cranston joint. No. You're going to see it because it's a Wes Anderson film. And it's crazy that he's a director who has such a big name and yet is able to attract so many big names, right? Yeah. He, he, like he's able to attract the, you know, A plus of the A listers. Like when Clooney came on board uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, it feels like a big deal and a big coup. But he's always been attracting big names like that. George Clooney and Meryl Streep in your animated film? Yeah, of course you can get that. You're Wes Anderson. <laughs> you know, you got Bill Murray for your second film. You got James Caan for your first film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, Matt, should we just talk about how we feel about these movies or what? Let's do it. Yeah, I I mean, no surprise. I fucking, I love this movie. I had a great time. The, the thing about Isle of Dogs, and we've both only seen it once, is that it is it is so intricate. There's so much going on in each frame of this movie and it's 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 so fast paced you're just cutting between flashbacks and you know going between you know different parts of the world that it, it really does require multiple viewings and i i need to see it again to really form my thoughts and have some time with it um but on on first glance uh yeah just another another awesome wes anderson movie yeah my first the first word that came to my head when i left the theater was delightful i wasn't struck i wasn't like a gobsmacked the way that i was when i came out of fantastic mr fox but i just was like he, he fucking did it again like that was delightful that was beautiful that was funny that was heartwarming um it was yeah you know like you know obviously an intricate crazy impressive feast for the eyes but I guess the first thing I thought when I walked out of it was, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd put that right smack dab in the middle of his canon. That sounds like a slight or an insult to say that out loud, but I have such, I hold all of his films to such high esteem that putting it right in the middle, I still mean as a compliment. You know, like I think that this, I think this stands right alongside any of any of the real, real good ones. This is, I think this movie is good with a capital G. Yeah, and you know, I did my ranking before this podcast too, and I. I I feel the same way. I hold those movies uh, to very high esteem, and you know they're bunched really tightly together. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the middle of the pack is, pardon the pun, is is very close knit. Yeah, and, and so I'm putting this near the bottom of my list just because I've only seen it once and I haven't had too much time with it. And you know his movies do reward you quite a bit on on repeat viewings. You know, there's a lot of jokes you miss the first time. There's a lot of things you you just don't see in the frame. Uh, the first time so you know i'm gonna give it probably an unfair ranking to begin with but that's okay it is it is pretty dense um which is not new like that's not a new a new thing for him um i will say that like plot is simple and yet surprisingly convoluted um so i was i will say that i was kind of like struggling to stay on top of things or struggling to keep up with things despite the fact that i think it's actually pretty darn simple uh, maybe that just says something about me i i don't think that the um that the narrative structure is quite as elegant as it has been in the past it felt a little clunkier um in terms of how the you know he's always experimented with um you know you know non-linear or you know flashback structure or whatever um you know inventive ways of delivering exposition mm-hmm. Um, this time around, it felt oftentimes like it was uh, things weren't landing quite as um, softly or as elegantly as I would have liked. Yeah, I mean, there is some exposition, some story stuff that there's some heavy lifting that needs to be done. Yeah, you know, mutual friend and friend of the podcast, Ryan Julio, um, really, really disliked this film. And uh, and he mentioned it to me the other day. We were texting, and, and he said that he felt that it was the most the most heavy-handed expositional Wes Anderson film, which I don't necessarily agree with, but the movie does spend a lot of time doing that. I, I feel like Wes Anderson, his exposition is more fun than many of his yeah. contemporaries. Like, oftentimes he can use exposition as a way to... Um, as a way to get a laugh like sometimes he can even get a laugh just from cutting to a different location Mm -hmm. or just from one of his title cards yes yes um which are which are obviously sort of like a trademark of his um but i did feel like and we can sort of like get into ideas of like language and translation and subtitling um but i did feel like there was some 
A, unnecessary text in this film, and B, times when I could have used more text. Does that make sense? Like, I felt like there was times when it was holding my hand and times when I could have used a little bit more uh, of a flashlight pointing me in the right direction. Sure, that makes sense. I mean, if you think about the way he's done exposition in the past, and he's got a lot of movies where the exposition is pretty minimal and just unfolds very organically throughout the film. And, you know, especially in his early films, like, there are revelations that come very late in the movie, you know, stuff like Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, or it's, even in Royal Tenenbaums, you know, the, the, the beginning exposition, which is somewhat similar to, like, the beginning of Grand Budapest Hotel, is given in a very, it, it, it's narrated, it's it's literary, it comes at you in sort of, like, a a prologue sense. So so he's he's very upfront with like here's the information you need. I'm going to present it to you in a in a in a funny uh, straightforward way and you're going to be set up for the rest of the movie. This movie has certain elements of that, but it does seem like we're never done getting some of that exposition. So it, it sort of filters out maybe more so throughout the film than it would in in other Wes Anderson movies. I mean, just in the category of narration. In The Royal Tenenbaums, you obviously get Alec Baldwin, who is the voice of the book that is being read, right? Yeah. So, like, he is literally, I mean, the very first shot of the movie is the book being checked out, and then Alec Baldwin reads the book to us. It's perfect. It's clean. It's elegant. It's lovely. It it works really well. Really well. Plus, again, fucking Alec Baldwin narrates the third film you've ever made. Here you have Courtney B. Vance as our narrator, but he's brought in kind of late, don't get me wrong. He's wonderful. His voice is amazing. He, he's he's the right choice for this film. And in, I never got a clear sense of exactly who I was listening to or what his perspective was. Sure. Does that make sense? Not that a narrator needs to necessarily be embedded in the film, but like they brought him in, in Anderson brought him in in such a way that I was just like, oh, okay, where, where what perspective, are we, are we reading a book? Is this a comic book? Is this, is this somebody telling, um, you know, is this a campfire story? Mm-hmm. I never got a clear sense of what the Courtney B. Vance perspective or personality was, as much as I liked his voice and appreciated how it was written. Yeah, I mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, and if you look at something like Moonrise Kingdom, you have Bob Balaban basically being yeah. your, your tour <laughs> guide who comes on yeah. screen literally and is 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 showing you um i i guess the story the history of the story or what have you and it might not make any more sense than courtney b vance in this movie but at least there's something tangible there i suppose no you're exactly right i mean i love how explicit that is in moonrise kingdom that like you're literally watching a guy explain the weather patterns of this particular (laughs) island right yeah And yet it's so charming somehow, you know, and having Bob Balaban helps. P.S. I love the fact that Bob Balaban is part of the Wes Anderson repertory group. <laughs> I just, it warms my heart so much. Yeah. I also love that Harvey Keitel is part of the Wes Anderson <laughs> repertory group as well. I think Ryan's criticism is valid in terms of, you know, exposition's tough, you know, like exposition draws attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you deliver it, you got to be really stealthy. Like you got to be, you got to be cool about it. Like obviously Wes has a personality and he has a lot of style and he's willing to experiment with this kind of stuff. This movie just felt somewhat inconsistent to me in terms of how it doled the stuff out what it expected Courtney B. Vance to do, you know, the Courtney B. Vance heavy lifting, if you will, what it expected just sort of like the title cards to do mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or like certain like hard cuts to flashbacks. To me, I was just, I was constantly like on a little bit of a swivel in ways that with some of his, I think a little bit smoother films, I've been uh, sort of like carried along for the ride. A little bit better. Yeah, and I think that's probably just... These are, these are real nitpicky things. No, I, mean, I think it's probably just a function of, of the narrative itself being a little more convoluted than you know his stories typically are. His stories are typically pretty simple and straightforward. You know, think about his other stop-motion movie, Fantastic Mr. Fox. There's no real confusion ever about what's going on in that movie, right? Pretty linear. Yeah, extremely linear. We, we know what's happening. A lot of his other movies, uh, even when they aren't linear, uh, very straightforward, uh, falling maybe, yeah, the one storyline, it, it never gets confusing. And I agree with you in this, and it might be a part of it, and I'm sure a lot of it, it has to do with sort of the, the language decisions uh, they made in this movie in terms of what they weren't going to um, give give the audience and what they were going to give the audience, and we can we can get into that. Um, what did you think about the sort of 
you know, gimmicky, I suppose, choice. So basically the conceit here is that the dogs are being translated into English. Nothing else is going to be directly translated via voiceover or subtitle. And he gets around it in certain places with sort of clever translators or or, or what have you. But um, when the Japanese people speak in this movie, uh, we are not... We do not know what they're saying. I think it's brilliant. It might be my favorite risk that the movie takes. Sure. I think it's really fun. I think it's really exciting. Um, I think it's really bold on his part to do it this way. And, you know, obviously this is coming from the place of somebody who doesn't speak Japanese. As soon as I, the minute that I like left the film, the first thing I thought was, God, I really want to go see that movie with somebody who speaks Japanese. (laughs) And... I mean, obviously, probably shouldn't do it in a theater setting. Probably should wait until we can watch it in a living room or something so we don't annoy everybody sitting around us. But I would really love to sit with somebody who speak, who's fluent in Japanese and watch this film, get an idea about, you know, like how important what they're saying is to what is going on or whether like the sort of like dramatic implications of the story are either increased or reduced based on the information you're getting from the character speaking Japanese. Sure. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like the movie sort of like withholding information from me based on the fact that it doesn't expect me to speak Japanese is really, is a really important part of the narrative. So if you can hear everything that everybody's saying, because you can speak English and Japanese, or if you were to just go ahead and just go through and subtitle all the Japanese speakers, does the movie suffer as a result? So I, I agree with everything you said. I, I really did enjoy this gimmick, conceit, whatever you want to call it. However, I do think it opened the movie up <laughs> to this sort of controversy in, in ways that maybe it wouldn't have been so severe um, if they had done it otherwise. The controversy being questions of cultural appropriation, uh, some people calling it out-and-out racism. The most egregious example is because of this language conceit, this, one of the savior characters, the, the, the character played by Greta Gerwig, a foreign exchange student, I'm guessing they chose that route because this is a pivotal character in the narrative and they needed it to be someone who spoke English, right? Oftentimes speaking very, very quickly, <laughs> delivering a lot of information in a very short time. Yeah, I do think in a in a vacuum, in a, in a general narrative sense, it would have been better if that was just a normal Japanese student. Um, because, you know, people saying, oh, it's just a typical white savior, last samurai <laughs> type situation uh, <laughs> happening here. However, so I do want to get your thoughts on this, and it's something we definitely should talk about. Did you get queasy at all about the way Wes Anderson portrayed Japan, Japanese culture, all that stuff? Because I definitely have some thoughts. I never get queasy, and maybe <laughs> maybe that's a reinforcement that's of your, my— That's your privilege, you know, buddy. White male uh, heterosexual privilege. I sort of take everything in a vacuum. I separate— artist from art yada 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 it doesn't make me a hero but it also doesn't make me an asshole (laughs) i'll just go ahead and say that um that no none of this stuff really occurred to me but i get it i empathize i'm sorry sympathize with it i do feel that we're in a situation where we have human characters who obviously are speak you know we're speaking a real human language that exists but we're also dealing with animal characters who are speaking an animal language that exists, but none of us speak. So I thought it was interesting the way that the movie dealt with the fact that um, it was going to have to translate something, right? And it, and and based on the story that he wanted to tell, Anderson wasn't interested in the dogs and the humans being able to communicate. So I appreciated the fact that he was like, okay, I want to be able to listen to the voices of the dogs, and I don't want them to understand the humans or vice versa. So let's play with language barriers here. And again, it's easy for me to be able to speak in this manner because I speak English, as does Wes Anderson. I I believe he speaks French because he lives in Paris, but I don't think he speaks much Japanese. And so he's clearly making it from the perspective of somebody who doesn't speak that particular language, nor does he speak dog. But his main characters are dogs. So in that regard, he just translates that language and chooses to leave the other one untranslated, unsubtitled. Sorry, that didn't totally answer your question. No, no, no. That's, no. Just, that's the perspective I'm coming from. Yeah, I, 
I mean, I've read a lot of articles in the last couple of days about people finding the movie problematic for this appropriation reason and, and you know just using the Japanese culture in any way. Um, and I guess my question is, is the idea that Wes Anderson shouldn't be allowed at all to make a movie set in Japan or his version of Japan? Um, I, I never felt he was looking down upon the culture. I mean, I, th- I thought it was respectful when it needed to be and, and, and showcase and had so many nods to, you know, whether it's Kurosawa or Miyazaki or, or, or whatever. I never felt in any way like it was uh, looking down upon or condescending. You know, Wes Anderson has his own, he, he treats all cultures he's dealt with in this same sort of whimsical Wes Anderson yeah. manner. So, like, I don't think he's pulling any punches here. I, I just, I wish people could not have to try to find try to find the problem quote unquote problematic nature of movies that's a of movies that are about talking dogs right like let, let, let's just step back and enjoy something for what it is not for you know not getting needlessly political with things no i i completely agree like i i was simultaneously taken aback and also not surprised when I saw those articles starting to pop up, right? Yeah. Like, this is the environment we live in now. Like, this is the, you know, we we, we just, it, it wouldn't be a 24-hour news cycle if we weren't aghast and offended by something. And I don't want to, I don't want to undervalue or undermine anybody who is offended by the film. But I also don't want to live in an environment where somebody is not allowed to make a film, you know, like convey a story someplace besides their own like the three feet yeah exactly (laughs) of their own bedroom right like i we need to be able to go out and make stories about places maybe we've never even visited before that's what that's what fiction's all about yeah in that regard to me it felt like he was celebrating his like love and appreciation for yeah miyazaki and kurosawa or whoever else um, so are some of the Japanese characters stereotypical? Absolutely. But it's also an animated film that sort of like deal, you know, is, gets to be somewhat broad in places. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's not really meant to be taken as reportage, you know, like it's clearly a very fantastical film. Yeah. That's very, very over the top sometimes. So, I mean, deals with talking dogs. So I, I completely get why people would, want to sort of like start a dialogue about this but to me it seemed to me that there was nothing more than like reverence for this culture his his attention to detail is obviously something that he's very like famous for and lauded for but just the the detail of his like tableaus and um you know like what is squeezed into every single frame of this film i feel is indicative of somebody who is fascinated by this culture mm-hmm. and like completely reverent and like impressed by this culture and this country and the cinema of this country it'd be one thing if he 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 was using cheap gags or making fun of the culture anyway and i never thought that or saw that and again i i'm with you i don't want to demean or poo-poo anyone's opinions that felt differently and you know if, if you are you know come from an asian background or japanese and you saw this movie and you felt like it was inappropriate in any way like that's yeah that's a that's a worthwhile opinion as just a random white guy <laughs> i don't really have a have a leg to stand on here but it didn't feel that way and I, but but i do I, you, have a, you have a pasty white leg to stand yeah, exactly. on let's give let's credit where credit's due exactly um, um I, I i do wonder though if, if the fact that this was wes anderson and there is just a lot of you know juice behind that name and you know he's been you know he's had his haters forever anyway that if if part of the reason for this sort of minority backlash you know because this movie has been very well received you know it it seems like it's a a small contingent who who have backlash against it if if it is just magnified because the fact that this is a wes anderson movie people are more willing to nitpick you know if, if coco had come out and it had been written and directed by wes anderson it was the exact same movie if people would be saying yeah, maybe similar things about the way the way that was made. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into what about isms, but um, I, I I am sort of baffled, like you, but also like you, not surprised. Well, I've also read articles that say like, why why are the dogs all voiced by 
white actors? Like, why are none of the dogs voiced by Japanese actors? Okay, I mean, they're dogs. I mean, technically, they're different species and breeds that come from all over the world, right? Yes, they probably were born and raised in Japan, but are, you know, should they be speaking with a Japanese accent? Like, I feel like going down this rabbit hole or dog hole yeah. <laughs> is very problematic. I mean, the film is, is chock-a-block with Japanese actors, and there's a Japanese co-writer as well. I don't know. I, I, I feel like when you start to criticize these kinds of things, put us in a place where the film just ends up not getting made. I, you know, again, I don't mean to minimize any of this stuff. It's just like, yes, most of or all of the dogs are voiced by Caucasian actors. I've, yeah, I mean, <laughs> better or for I, worse. I, I, the other thing, I mean, speaking in just a 10,000 foot view sense, right? Like sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. This is a movie. This is a silly movie about talking dogs. Yeah, that's that's what exactly. this is. Exactly. So we we've set our piece. We're we, you know we understand. So let's let's continue. So things that I loved 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 about this movie, and there was so many of them. I, I laughed harder in this film than I have in any. I mean, I made no secret of the fact that I'm getting to a point in my life where I'm getting to be kind of a stick in the mud, especially <laughs> when it comes to comedy. Yeah, yeah. And it's honestly, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit disturbed by how rare I actually will like audibly laugh. In movie theaters nowadays, I, I probably should go to therapy for this or whatever, but that's my own cross to bear. Um, my point is that I laughed audibly in this film more than I have in a long, long time. And I so appreciate Wes Anderson for being able to elicit that kind of, you know, just like spontaneous guttural reaction from me yes like i laughed a lot in this film and a lot of it was um due to uh jeff goldblum's just sort of like innocuous asides like i found <laughs> jeff goldblum's dog to be funnier in this than i found anything that he said in uh, thor ragnarok sure even though i know that's sacrilege right <laughs> yeah i mean the whole pack of dogs is is fantastic with goldblum and bill murray and uh, Bob Balaban and Brian Cranston and who's the one I'm missing? Uh, oh, Edward Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, Leo Schreiber comes along at the end as as one of the main, main dogs. <laughs> um, uh, one of the all time great voices. Why Leo Schreiber doesn't have more of? I mean, I guess he, you know, occasionally he'll pop up in a commercial or something, yeah. but. Leif Schreiber, like, that's a fucking voice, right? Like, no wonder he was cast as Orson Welles in the RKO 251 HBO movie. Well, talk about, I mean, real powerful voices on display here, of course. You know, Scarlett Johansson, one of the one of the greatest female voices we've we've had in a long time. I mean, we, we talked about her maybe getting an Academy Award nomination a few years back for just her voice and her, right? Her herself. Yeah, Brian Cranston is... is I thought it was holy shit good in this movie. I don't know if if Clooney wasn't offered the role or if they didn't want to work together. Like I, th- that seemed That's like the Clooney role for this for this movie, right? But I thought Cranston was had so much gravitas, and I loved him. And it was a, I thought it was a perfect choice for what I, I I believe was the had the most lines of any dog in the movie. Of course, he's top build. I mean, he's he's the star of this film. Like when you watch the trailers, it's like they'll throw Cranston's name up, and then they'll throw fifteen other names around him afterwards. Like. Cranston is the guy for this role, even if he had talked to Clooney about it or whatever. I think Cranston is a better choice for this than somebody like Clooney is. Yeah. We're just we're completely this is all hypothetical, by the way. We have no we have no, no proof that yeah. Clooney was court. But that being said, I think Clooney is a perfect fantastic Mr. Fox, not because he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world, but because I think his voice is perfect for Mr. Fox. Yeah. Right? And I think Meryl Streep was perfect for Mrs. Fox. Uh, I, I, To me, their star power notwithstanding, they are the two perfect actors for those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and look at Chris Christopherson in Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? He's probably the fourth <laughs> most important character in that film. Yeah. He's played by Eric Anderson, Wes Anderson's brother. Yeah. He's not played by a movie star. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And and I, and I respect that so much in the way that I respect, uh, you know, Pixar for choosing uh, Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres Pat and Oswald, in yeah. Patton Oswalt and Ratatouille, Craig T. Nelson, uh, you know, in The Incredibles, like pick the right person for the role, not the biggest movie star you can get for the role. That's filmmaking. The fact that you have half a dozen movie stars in this film who are bigger names than Brian Cranston and yet Brian Cranston has the sort of meatiest role really makes me super happy and makes me really impressed with Anderson for that kind of casting and yeah it's he, he's great he's phenomenal he's so just guttural and sort of haunted 
it's an incredible character. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the voice acting all around is fantastic. <laughs> Some people have made note of this. Uh, Wes Anderson, there's even an article a couple years back, but Wes Anderson has been <laughs> talked about as an anti-dog person uh, <laughs> before this movie came out. He hasn't treated dogs very well in his films. Well, I'm so happy you brought this up because I literally have a... <laughs> I have a rap sheet here in my notes of all the dogs he's either mistreated or killed. All right, so, go, go through it. Go through it. I guess the earliest example is the dog fights that play a pivotal role in uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, where you don't actually see the dog fights on screen, but you see the aftermath and the blood or whatever. Well, yeah, and then they kill a dog in that movie, too. Yeah, and then later in the film, they kill Buckley, of course, right, in the, in the climax of the film. Um, there's a three-legged dog in uh, The Life Aquatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, that ends up on the boat. It was like the pirate's three-legged dog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a dog who's been abused. Um, of course, they're drugging, they're roofing dogs all over Fantastic Mr. Fox. They keep roofing them with these uh, Mickey uh, blueberries. I mean, there's a scene where Jeff Goldblum whacks the dog with the newspaper in, in yes. Life Aquatic, which is just something else. But And then uh, and then they just straight-up shoot a dog in uh, Moonrise Kingdom, right? Uh, bow and arrow, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they just kill a dog. I mean, it's off screen, I think, but but they kill a dog with a bow and arrow, yeah, during the most violent scene in that film. So clearly uh, there's something to this, right? Or is this just all um, coincidental well, happenstance? You know, I, I wonder if this is partly just to quell those rumors that Wes Anderson made this movie, right? He wanted to make sure people didn't think he actually did hate dogs. Do you notice that someone brought this up that, you know, I love dogs is basically is I love dogs. That's a thing. And then also the fact that it's a neighborhood in East London, um, not too far from where the film was actually shot. That's relevant as well. Well, I mean, I I, I did just read an article that said uh, Wes Anderson was asked how this movie came about. And he said, well, I saw that sign for that neighborhood and I'd always want to make a movie Set in Japan, so uh, just decided to do it. <laughs> I saw a neighborhood in 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 England, and I thought to myself, "Hmm, I should make a movie about Japan." <laughs> yeah, so uh, not a very inspiring origin story for this movie, but you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? It seems right, you know. Like uh, Darjeeling Limited was his, you know, was his love letter to India and the films of Satyajit Ray, and Isle of Dogs is his Japanese film and his love letter to. Um, Akira Kurosawa like I just want him to work his way through <laughs> different cinemas of the world like so I, I just would like him to work his way through all of his influences just like I, I love I love the idea of globe trotting Wes Anderson just because he should be in a tweed suit with a scarf you know in in Sweden somewhere making <laughs> <laughs> making his 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 love letter to uh, the films of, of Ingmar Bergman yeah I mean he, he lives this privileged existence and more power to him he's this you know gawky kid from texas of all places and he's just cosmopolitan globe-trotting jet-setting auteur who just wanders around the world and makes these crazy you know love letters to cinema itself my favorite character in the film slash uh what i feel like is the funniest moment in the film is uh, tilda swinton (laughs) yeah To me, Tilda Swinton has the the flat out funniest moment in the entire film. Like she's the oracle, or she's one of the oracle dogs, right? Because she can watch, she can understand television. Yeah. And at one at one point, they're trying to discern, they're trying to figure out what the next move is, what the next step is, and they ask her what she would recommend, or you know, like what the future is going to bring. You know, what's on the news? And she's basically like, because she's so um, distracted by TV, she just turns towards the camera and goes, "Wait, what? What? It's what? <laughs> such, such a hilarious have... superpower for one of the dogs to have the <laughs> the one dog that can understand TV. It's great. Like her confusion is so genuine that I just like to believe that that wasn't actually. A scripted that that wasn't a performance that that was just literally Tilda Swinton was doing something else or she was texting on her phone and they just managed to capture her saying that or maybe she's just you know a genius of an actress that's probably it she's amazing plus I also love the fact that this is the third film in a row that she's in a Wes Anderson film and yet her role is so you know one of the biggest most accomplished performers in the world has this little tiny but show-stopping um character also i want a buddy cop movie with brian cranston and Liev schreiber yeah 
I'd watch How that. How great are they together? <laughs> Love the two of them so much. Is this the best wet eye movie ever made? Wet eye movie? How much time is spent on close-ups of wet eyes in this film? Yeah, I, I'll i give it that designation now that I think about it. Yeah, the eyes do a lot of work in this movie. And, yeah. and the yeah the, the animators themselves get a, get a lot of credit because these dogs are uh, incredibly emotive. Um, without saying anything a lot of the time. Yeah, they got they all have googly eyes, but they're also sort of like, I mean, I really feel like they took a lot of influence from the, the Nick Park films, right? Like the Wallace and Gromit films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what they use for tears, but whatever they're doing, whether it's Vaseline or, you know, KY jelly, whatever <laughs> it is, it's really impressive on screen. Mm-hmm. The sushi scene. Yes. Loved is it like so much. That, like that's something that uh, Saturday Night Live should have parodied as a Wes Anderson sequence, right? <laughs> like the idea of an o- overhead examination of sushi preparation. Like it's it's an anomaly that this hasn't happened before in a Wes Anderson film. Um, the bar scene with Yoko Ono. Yeah. Pivotal scene, narratively a very a pivotal scene. And it also features that um, uh, Tokyo Shoeshine Boy song, which I always associate with M.A.S.H., because it's a, it's a very important song in the movie M.A.S.H., and we know that Wes Anderson's a big fan of M.A.S.H. because uh, Mr. Fox's whistle in Fantastic Mr. Fox is Donald Sutherland's whistle from M.A.S.H. Uh-huh. Um, the Bottle Cave. Yes. The cave oh my God. made of bottles. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of people have uh, discussed how drab this movie is compared to a lot of Wes Anderson's films, but there are so many moments of just bursts of color and just little scenes here and there that are uh, so visually striking. And, and that bottle scene was maybe the, the most uh, visually striking of all of them. Yeah, I, I feel like it's one of his more disciplined films in terms of the color palette, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. It doesn't make it a less visually impressive film. It just means he's a little more exacting than usual in terms of how he chooses to... I mean, I, there are moments of like brilliant color i mean that that bottle sequence pops so much more because so much of the trash island stuff is so monochromatic right well another another triumph for for wes anderson i'm i'm sad to think that we're gonna have to wait another another few years for his next movie but uh if it means we get another stop action film i'm happy to wait another four or five i'm guessing his next movie will not be a stop motion film but we'll see how how quick What's his next movie after Fantastic Mr. Fox? Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox was 2009. Moonrise Kingdom was uh, 2012. So you're still talking three years. Still talking right? three years. Dang. Yeah, you wonder, you know, given the extended, how long it takes to do these stop motion things if he was noodling on something else, you know, during production at any point. But he seems like the kind of guy who, who doesn't, uh, doesn't really multitask. Uh, with his projects now uh can i can i just throw a sort of like wish list thing out there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can he work with bruce willis again <laughs> yeah can we please bring bruce back into the fold i mean bruce willis has a reputation for being very persnickety very difficult to work with so i, I would understand if he doesn't jibe with the um the very like convivial sort of an environment that it sounds like exists on most of wes's sets but God damn, is he good in Moonrise Kingdom? He is so heartbreaking and adorable in that film. Mm-hmm. I just, I just want to see more of that. Like, how great is it when guys like Tarantino or Ryan Johnson or Wes Anderson get a hold of Bruce Willis and like, no, 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 like he's got some. There's something there. There's something more there than just you know what we expect from him. It's so great when some when a director pushes him uh-huh. to prove to us why he's more than just John McClane. Yeah, I mean, and Bruce Willis always rises to the occasion when called for right yeah yeah i mean it is really just about the material because when when necessary bruce knows when it's it's time to shine yeah do, do you know what my wish list is for wes anderson's next movie Here, here's what i kind of want I, I want something smaller go back to the basics um and i want it to just be a wes anderson owen wilson script i want to see okay. i want to see what that would look like right now love that yeah go back to texas do, do something in texas oh that's a great idea yeah now that now that he's globe trotted around the world um yeah take it back to where it all started so uh yeah in the spirit of that why don't you rank the nine wes anderson films and tell us where those texas movies rank all right do you want me to go bottom to top or top to bottom uh bottom to top 10 to 9 all right 9 to 9 to 1 9 to 1 rather. yeah sorry all right, my number nine, and again, these are tightly bound. I, I, I like all these movies. Um, I still, as much as I love it, put Bottle Rocket at the bottom. First movie, first movie, it's still good, but it, uh, he hadn't you know, found his whole, 
hadn't found his voice yet. Um, number eight for me, like I said, I you know I, I'm gonna give this movie time, but I'm putting number eight, Isle of Dogs. Sorry. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I, I, low. I I have the ability to move it up uh, in the rankings after after more viewings, but I'm I'm gonna leave it there for now just to be safe. Okay. Okay. Number seven, I got Darjeeling. Number six, I have Life Aquatic. Number five, I have Moonrise Kingdom. Number four, I have Fantastic Mr. Fox. Number three, I have Royal Tenenbaums. Number two, Grand Budapest Hotel. And number one, still, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, Rushmore. That, that makes me happy. I'm, I'm glad that Rushmore is that high. I'm, I'm surprised how many similarities we have in our lists. That being said, uh, you are such a life aquatic apologist. <laughs> <laughs> you put it I am. way too high. You have been. Lo- I love that movie so much, man. I know. We've talked about it over the years, and I, I just will never understand your love for that film. But at least you're consistent. Um, okay. Uh, we have the exact same number nine uh, bottle rocket. For me, number eight is The Life Aquatic, which is not a movie I hate. Well, first off, let me go back to Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket is a movie I, I think is adorable. But is really shows the seams of being a debut feature. Yeah. Like I think it's a really it's really fun as a debut feature, and there's a lot of things in it that are like admirable. It's just not a movie that I have much desire to revisit. Life Aquatic is I think him just kind of like throwing everything at the wall and just seeing what sticks. <laughs> like it's really him with a it's it's him working with a budget that was way more than he should have been granted at that point in his career. <laughs> you know, like he's allowed to go to Italy with this ridiculous cast and it it just seems like him with way too much power. To me the movie is just like bloated and and just I don't know, just bubbles over with um indulgence. You're wrong. Give me a sequel. I want a sequel. <laughs> that being said, there's a lot about it that I really really like and uh there's a lot of sequences of the film that I revisit independent of the uh, of, of the film itself. Number 7 would be Darjeeling Limited, which I think a lot of people point to as his worst film. I think that it's a an incredibly an, an inconsistent film. Sure. And a film with a lot of flaws, but still one that I I find to be very moving and and kind of romantic in its own way. And from here on out, I think it's just a personal preference issue like six through one i think these movies are all fantastic six would be moonrise kingdom five would be isle of dogs and at this point i think they're kind of interchangeable i, I really really like them both isle of dogs i'm kind of like high on right now because it's brand spanking new but i could really see those two kind of like flip-flopping over the years uh four is the royal tenenbaums feels weird to have it this low yeah but that's because three two and one are i feel all masterpieces three would be rushmore two is grand budapest and one is fantastic mr fox all right number one fantastic mr fox i mean yeah you do you do want him just to only do stop motion huh yeah i i I think i think that's i think that's the true nature of the filmmaker like i think fantastic mr fox is the truest example of what this filmmaker was born to do yeah and i could say say the same thing about nolan Right. Like I think it's Inception is Christopher Nolan's best film because I think it's the the most pure encapsulation of what this filmmaker was put on the earth to do down to the fact that he basically dresses Leonardo DiCaprio the way that he dresses. (laughs) And Mr. Fox is dressed exactly the same way (laughs) as Wes Anderson is dressed in every interview I've ever seen the guy. I mean, I really think it's like them sort of saying I'm going to actually inject myself into the um, protagonist of this Film. Well, I, I have decided that I will be watching Fantastic Mr. Fox tonight uh, just to <laughs> keep keep this hot buzz going. All right, Matt. Hopefully it's only a couple more years till we get to do another Wes Anderson podcast. But uh, it's a pleasure uh, going through his oeuvre with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll have more Wes Anderson talk uh, in the future. Gun to your head right now. Which Anderson do you prefer, PT or Wes? <laughs> oh no! Oh, <laughs> Trying to put you on the spot. Um, uh, Gun to the head. Just, first em- knee jerk. If, if desert island scenario, just uh, in terms of yep. watchability, I'm going to take Wes. I want to take his movies. Okay, because they'll, they'll make me feel they'll make me feel better. I'll take PT. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I knew that would be your answer, but that's all right. I mean, is it is it fair to say that yeah, PT's best movies are better than Wes? Ah, fuck, I don't know. I don't want to talk about this right now. God damn it. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I think I think I think this is a great. I think I think we're inventing a great idea for a podcast right now. We do we do we rank or we uh, we compare the Andersons. Yeah, 
so so we we, we rank we rank the movies and then we have showdowns between each of them in the rankings i think that's a good plan exactly yeah, yeah. all right cool good idea we just duel to the death we just invented a new, a new podcast that was great um all right until next time this has been we like movies say goodbye matt goodbye matt あの、あ、じょうさん。よ、わまだ来ないけど、きっと彼女は来てくれる。あ、雨の降る日も風の日も。さあ、さあ、みんなさん、僕が見なければどんな靴でもよく光る。あ、しゅしゅしゅしゅ